listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and creedal Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skyler. Skyler. And uh, it's, it's been a while for us. It, it has. Um, you know, the listeners wouldn't know it, because... We pre-recorded a number of podcasts, but uh, we haven't done this for like a month. I feel rusty. I know. I don't even know what I'm going to say today. It could get crazy. <laughs> but I'm feeling rested up, ready to go. Yeah. Ready to knock off some rust and uh, get after it. So how how'd you spend your quote-unquote time off? Well, I did go on a few hikes All right. at your suggestion. Inside Peak? <laughs> <laughs> That should have been one. Uh, <laughs> uh, they won't understand why I'm laughing so hard. It could come up today. It's an inside joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something with the cross. I don't know. Um, and as I kept thinking, oh, man, this would be a chance to get ahead in Mormon studies. Take my understanding Mormonism to the next level. Instead, I just bought the books and read other things. Yeah. I I, had, I didn't touch. What was, the, what was the best thing you've read over the last oh my goodness. You know, Three weeks or a month or how yeah. Long well, been. I read three books in a row by David Kurtzer. He's a historian of Italy. Yeah, and um, they dealt the books dealt with, of course, Italian history, European history. Um, it did deal with um, treatment of the Jews in Europe at the time. Dealt with Pope Pius the Ninth, Pope Pius the Eleventh, and Pope Pius the Twelfth. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought the book, the Pope and Mussolini was totally fascinating. Mm. Um, and then his his recent one, it was a reread on uh, the Pope, who is a huge source of debate between liberals and conservatives within the Roman communion, right, over the Pope simultaneous to the Holocaust, and did he say enough, or did he say nothing? You know, is he Hitler's Pope, or is he, you know, was he you know doing everything he could to help the Jews and whatever? Mm. And, of course, the truth's in the middle. He's... Neither Hitler's yeah. Pope nor some great saint, I think. But um, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so I would say those books, um, the Pope who would be king, the Pope and Mussolini, and the Pope at War, were fantastic reads. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't put them down. Yeah, nice. Sounds thrilling. I read. Uh, well, I'm reading. You don't get to read much when you're traveling with five children uh, across the country. Turns out, yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, you still have to do parenting and, and stuff like that. So, uh, but I snuck in some some uh, fiction. I'm reading uh, Andrew Peterson's The Wing Feather Saga, hmm. uh, which I don't know if you know who Andrew Peterson is, I, but he's, I don't. he's a Christian. So he's a Christian uh, music artist. Is kind of how he gained his notoriety. Uh, songwriter, uh, solid reformed brother, but he is uh he's just a an artist of all types i mean he it really has a desire to see christians engaging the arts well and so he has started uh even a publishing house called the rabbit room and they publish just really beautiful art and uh be- like beautiful poetry and and writings and books there's uh my favorite thing that i have of theirs is uh a couple of uh, collections of new liturgies that have been written kind of liturgies for everyday life hmm. and uh, it's called every moment holy and they have volume one and two uh, volume one is 
kind of general on lots of different topics. So there's like a liturgy for changing diapers and, uh, you know, liturgy for, uh, you know, um, beekeeping and different things. And it's just really beautiful and uh, encouraging to read. And then the second volume he did on, or the the writer, this isn't Andrew Peterson, but it's just out of his publishing house, but uh, he did one on death and suffering. And so like it's a bunch of liturgies on, on death and suffering. And then there's a third one I saw that's just now about to come out third volume. And I mean, these are like, you know, pretty thick volumes. They have lots of liturgies in them and, um, just good. It's the kind of thing I, I think, yeah, it's, it's different than what a lot of, uh, my reading typically entails. And so it's refreshing when I go to that kind of a thing. But in any case, Andrew Peterson, uh, wrote a fiction series called the wing feather saga, and it's actually been really popular and, uh, it's, uh, well-written, great storytelling. Um, you know, it, it kind of lands in the same, genres like the Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. I'd say. And, uh, you know, definitely geared toward all age groups, but down, to, you know, older children could enjoy hearing these things read and, and into teenage years and adults as well. So, huh. um, yeah, it's been, been fun reading that. In so. your opinion, is it as good as Narnia better? I don't know Not yet. Quite as I good? need to get through it Okay, before I can decide. Just curious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more theologically sound than Narnia. I can tell you that for sure. So, <laughs> but oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> not, not any hints of universalism I, or anything, I, right? I I have um I had mixed feelings about Lewis, of course, coming out of the LDSism because I'm yeah. like, man, any Christian thinker that LDS general authorities can comfortably quote must not be Christian enough. That was kind of my bias, yeah. and it, it was prejudice. I admit mm-hmm. it, you know. Yep. Um. And then I got his book, Miracles. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, Lewis is awesome. Yeah. You know, like he's, yeah. he can be so great. But yeah. But at the same time, quirks, man. Just yeah, he's, he, he does. And so I find myself kind of definitely in the middle of like, there's the Lewis accolades, you know, just Lewis, 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 Lewis. Oh, yeah. And then there's people that, you know, call him a heretic and cast him out of the kingdom and hate him. Yep. And I'm like, I'm neither of those. Yeah. I I like yep. I like him on some things. Yeah. But yeah. I love the Chronicles of Narnia for yes. sure. And uh, yes. anyway, so it's been it's been good reading that. Hopefully I'll get through it eventually. But mm-hmm. yeah. So I've heard his space trilogy is pretty cool too, but I, I never read, read it. I haven't yeah. read that one. Yeah. He has a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. he's prolific. And uh yeah, I've read Mere Christianity and um I've read, uh, oh, what are some of the other ones? The Problem of Pain. Uh, what else? Uh, the Four Loves. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've read Miracles. Um, I haven't read The Screwtape Letters, which is I like kind of like letters. one of the ones you're supposed to read, you know? Yeah. But you know, anyways. I'm not the biggest fan of mere Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's good. But uh, though there is this weird, like, Apollinarian streak mm-hmm. that I I don't think he knew he was being, yeah. you know, flirting with yeah. heresy but um the best bit I don't think it's in a mere good... Christianity is his stuff on pride yes that's just a man yeah absolutely. so good so mm-hmm. anyway the great divorce sorry that's the one I really like the great divorce mm-hmm. um and the abolition of man those are also some really good ones yep classics 
Okay. Well, back at it. So let's get go. into it. We've got some good stuff yeah, coming big, at you today. A big one. Um, yeah, so it is on the crucifixion. And so it the curriculum that we're going to be looking at in the Come Follow Me manual, the LDS manual, is covering the dates June 19th through the 25th, 2023, if anybody's listening in real time. Again, if you're not, that's not going to hurt you at all in terms of being able to track along with the material. But uh, this is covering Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 13, and John 19. And all of those, generally speaking, are covering the uh, crucifixion narrative. So um, all the way from the uh, stuff with Judas to Pilate, uh, you know, to the the death of Jesus and uh, everything in between. And so, um, you know, the synoptics all have very similar accounts going on in those different things. John 19 includes, of course, the similar details, but always from kind of that different angle. Um, always feels like more of a personal eyewitness angle, and John always seems to be inserting different uh, kind of theological applications and, uh, and uh, you know, more... Uh, obvious way, I guess, than what you see in some of the synoptics who feel a little more just historic Mm -hmm. in the way that they're writing. But uh, in any case, it's covering the crucifixion. And so that's what we're talking about. So the subtitle, if we just walk through this LDS curriculum real quick, is It Is Finished. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, What what is finished? Yeah, what is? (laughs) Uh, Progression's not. Progression, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, we, we both had noticed, and you mentioned this before we came on, so I think it's worth reading. The, you know, they always put the little bit at the top for the person who's teaching this lesson in the Sunday school lesson, and it's always just a little encouragement of some sort for the Sunday school teacher. And this, this week it says, begin your preparation to teach by prayerfully reading Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. So far, so good, right? And then comes the next part that we would very much disagree with, live, or seek to live worthy of the Spirit so that you can bear powerful witness of the Savior and His atonement. So anyway, we, we, we know, I mean, we, we have ideas of worthiness and, yeah. you know, an evangelical, credal Christian worldview, but we know the LDS understanding of what it means to be worthy is different than what we're talking about. We're Absolutely. talking about in response to the gospel that we've received. You know, you think of Paul yeah. in Ephesians 4, live worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Um, and so there is that sense of worthiness, but it's in response to the objective reality of the gospel and what Christ mm-hmm. has accomplished for us and in the indwelling of the spirit that had nothing to do with our performance or seeking or ability or anything else. Uh, so for them to say, seek to live worthy of the spirit, we know what they mean by that. Yeah. Is if you want the spirit, you better be worthy for the yep. spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the spirit isn't given objectively apart from what we do. It's given because of what we do. Right. And so, yeah, as you, I guess, read this from an LDS perspective, you're supposed to be seeking to live worthy of the spirit so that as a teacher, you can bear powerful witness of the Savior and his atonement. It's so weird, you know. And I just even say, just... as a preacher, um, you know, as a teacher, um, it, th- there is a sense in which, uh, you know, I think teaching is a, a serious calling. Sure. You know, uh, James three makes that very clear. Not all, not all of you should be teachers, um, because teachers are going to be held doubly accountable for the things that they teach. But uh, every week that I 
get up to preach and I get into the pulpit. I've studied throughout the week. You know, I have things prepared. I feel totally inadequate. Um, I, I feel as if I am unworthy to be stepping into the pulpit and, uh, you know, to have this sort of thing, like you got, hopefully you've been worthy enough to bear powerful witness <laughs> to the savior. It's like, no, no, the spirit bears witness to Christ and to the objective reality yeah. of who he is. That's and what right. He's done. Not our worthiness. It's yeah. As if it's dependent on our subjective, this or that. Yeah for the spirit to then bear witness to the truth of what happened. I don't know. It's yeah. Yeah. And, and when are you worthy enough? Yeah. How do you know? I mean, if you are, Paul says I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, I, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I All right. Know. So we get into the teach the doctrine section and I'm going to move through this pretty quick because, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, it, the faster we can just kind of get it turned over to, talking about the meat of what we're going to be talking about, which is uh, really the, uh, the cross, um, you know, and, and how does that relate even to the atonement and everything else again. But um, here we go. Jesus Christ's willingness. This is the subtitle covering Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. So this is supposed to be just generally covering all this. Jesus Christ's willingness to suffer shows his love for the Father and for all of us. All. All of us. Yep. Um, and then it goes on to encourage the class to do this exercise where they're going to understand how the Savior's suffering and death on the cross demonstrated his love by doing this activity. Each class member is going to take a paper heart, and they're going to be invited to write on their hearts a phrase from 1 Corinthians 13, four to seven, that describes charity. And then they're going to search Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19, and write on the other side of their hearts a few verses that show how the Savior demonstrated the love described in the phrase that they chose. That they chose. Yeah. Notice, do you think there's any irony in their mind? Yeah. Ezekiel, right, Ezekiel, what? The Spirit writes the law on our hearts, their activity, the week of the cross, they write a phrase they like on their heart and determine how Jesus fulfilled what they see mm-hmm. in the phrase they chose. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's a little weird. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting how, and this is a, this is a trait of what we've talked about in theological liberalism over and over again mm-hmm. to look at the cross and immediately go to love. And mm-hmm. uh, there's not a jump to talk about the justice of God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'm not saying that they don't talk about justice because I know that they do in the, in, in a different sense than what we would. But still, on a practical street level, it's like, let's go straight to love. Let's bring in 1 Corinthians 13 um, when we're talking about these texts that are talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and kind of focus that fundamentally on how Jesus loves us because he was willing to suffer for us. Um, and basically, how, how, uh, how does that inspire you to be a more loving person, right? Yeah. Um, and, and why not? Earlier in First Corinthians, you know, when it talks about the cross, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, they're supposed to pull up art. 
So the manual encourages under the additional resources some different art pictures, some different images, and class members are going to read the verses that describe the event that are depicted in these different pictures. And it says they could then share their thoughts and feelings about these events, including how the picture helps them better understand the Savior's atonement. So I, I, I just made a little bit of a note on this. And, and by the way, um, I'll just tell you right now, I am not anti-Christian art, okay? Um, I'll tell you, like, I'm not, I, I know that you're really dogmatic about images of Jesus. I am. I am leery, but not as dogmatic as sure. you are. Sure, But Christian art in general, um, even take images of Jesus out of the equation, I love. I mean, yeah. I, I love looking at different depictions mm-hmm. of of biblical events and in, in history, generally speaking. Um, I'm a little weirder about video um, for whatever reason. The dramatization of things uh, I, I don't I don't think is as good uh, for us, just because I do think that there's that that minimizes the impact of the text itself as we read it, and the Holy Spirit works in us what uh, what we ought to be understanding through the reading of the text. But um, in any case, when I'm looking at art, I'm not trying to think of well, let me put it this way. I'm not interpreting I'm not interpreting the scripture through it looking at a picture right. and trying to think about how the picture makes me have thoughts and feelings about the events. You know what I'm saying? They don't say that about the text ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just very I mean like you you I mean maybe in some evangelical circles you'd see some classes doing this sort of a thing, but generally speaking when we're getting into the text, we want to study the text. You know, mm-hmm. we're not trying to just have an experience by looking at a picture or something like that. Yeah. We did have flannel boards though in uh, Baptist Sunday school classes. Hmm. And uh, I still remember, you know, the little flannel. Do you know what a flannel board is? Oh man. (laughs) This is where you start to see the difference between he who grew up in Bible belt South and he who did not. Mm -hmm. Flannel boards were like this. uh, So it was for children's Sunday school. Okay. And it was felt, and okay. uh, you had a felt board, and then you had little characters for the Bible stories, like Noah's Ark would be like cut out, and it would be a like a little you know flappy piece of flannel, and mm-hmm. it could stick onto the oh, felt. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm I, talking about? Yep. Anyway, I got what you mean. <laughs> I I think, um, but but I still I don't ever remember a moment of like. The flannel board being what was facilitating the discussion. Right. It was always like, no, the flannel board even was just meant to to help tell the story as we looked at the text. But anyways. Yeah, no, totally. And, it, you know, Christianity, Judaism as well, I should say practicing Judaism, um, it's word-centered, you know. So, you know, the phrase, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words or whatever we we actually totally disagree we think the word is worth ten thousand pictures yeah and um it's the word who speaks and um just um just for those who aren't totally clear on these types of debates it's pictures of jesus that i'm totally opposed to Mm. and then i'm very sensitive to the use of images in worship yeah right i'm not opposed to art yep you know in the abstract i'm opposed to any sort of depiction of god yeah and so that's yeah, because that's of the, the issue. Yeah, because of the second commandment. Exactly. And Jesus being both the God of the first and the second. Yeah. Yep. Right. 
which that's a debated issue it is. within Credo Christianity, but it is. Anyway, um, maybe we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it One day. at some point. But of course, I think all Christians would see how this is totally backwards, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I mean, even those who oppose the iconoclast, right, should see that the, the primary medium by which God speaks to us is not through a picture based on how someone imagines the events that are documented in the scriptures, but the scriptures. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Let's study the words, right? Right. Not, right. not pictures that were someone else's exactly. idea of how things might have looked. Exactly. And then obviously, you know, this the kind of issues that creep in too, where we start to make Jesus in our own image. That's the white capitalist Swedish Jesus, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, the black Hebrew Israelite yep. Jesus. Or, yep. No, you know, it's... <laughs> Yeah. Where we start to imagine, we, we get more attached to our image of who mm. he is. We are to be conformed into the image of Christ exactly. and seek to conform him into our personal preference of image. Exactly. Okay, so Matthew 27, 11 to 60 is the next subsection, and the subtitle on that one is Ancient Prophets Foresaw the Savior's Suffering and Crucifixion. Ancient Prophets Foretold Many of the Events in the Savior's Final Hours. One way to help class members see this is to give each person uh, one or more of the scriptures in the additional resources. And so they list a lot of additional resources uh, or a lot of scriptures in the additional resources. Many are from Isaiah, but you also, of course, have the typical First Nephi. Um, yeah, there's two from First yeah. Nephi there. No, it's not in a row. Yeah, yep. <laughs> kind of dispersed throughout. Yep. Yep, for sure. Put it on the same level. Uh, so, yeah, and, and then under the additional resources, uh, scriptures that foretell the trials and death of Jesus Christ and uh, anywho. So that's uh, one of the, you know, the I believe those Nephi passages are probably the ones where it uses the phrase or the word cross even, and that's been something that's been disputed within the Book of Mormon. I could be wrong on that. I'd have to double-check it. But yeah, let me look it up. I'd be a little surprised if it didn't or wasn't one of them. While you're looking that up, I'm going to move us on so that we can get to the meat of this stuff. So the next subsection is, is covering... Uh, some of the points that highlighted opposition within the text. And the subtitle is Opposition Cannot Stop the Work of God. To help class members faithfully face opposition as they live true to their faith, you could invite them to read verses describing the persecution the Savior faced. What do we learn from the Savior's responses that can help us face opposition? I'm not going to comment extensively on this, but one of the traits that you do find without LDSism is this narrative of, uh, you know, one of the symbols of us being the true church is the opposition that we've had to face over and over again mm-hmm. and these different miracles that have happened for God to deliver us through that opposition. And uh, I, I'll just say, you know, from an even evangelical or credo Christian perspective, uh, we would look to the scriptures to try to figure out who the opponents of God are in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, not just how do we, in this abstract way, deal with different opposition that comes, mm-hmm. but what is the source of the opposition? Who are the ones who are seeking to stop the work of God, and how is that understood, biblically speaking? Yeah. And we just recently did a dive into a text that I think speaks very relevant relevantly into this in Ezra. I can't were you with us on that? I think you may have been on have been Ezra on four. Mm-hmm. Ezra four verses one to six and Ezra and Nehemiah are showing opposition against the work of God over and over again. And I think what's fascinating is what uh what Ezra shows so clearly in that text. And you go look it up, Ezra, Ezra four verses one to six is that the opponents of God are, 
at the core, those who do not properly worship Yahweh as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. That's who the opponents of God are. So who is stopping the work of God? It's those who are not rightly understanding who Yahweh is and worshiping him as the one and only true God. Right. According to the Shema, yep. Deuteronomy 6, yep. there's only one God. There's there is one. no other. And so those who are the opponents of God, who actually provide opposition against the work of God, are the ones who don't truly worship Yahweh. And what's so fascinating is the nature of the opposition that you see in Ezra 4 isn't a casting of stones in the way that you see happening in these particular texts, of course, that they're drawing out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the opponents of God actually try to warm up to the people of God and say, we worship Yahweh too. Right. Just like you just do. Just like you. We're the same as you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ezra actually gives us a hint in that text that these people of the lands are the people that we see in 2 Kings 17. So go look that up. 2 Kings 17, I think, starting in like verse 25 down to around verse 35. That should get you in the range. And what you see there is that the people of the lands were people who, as pagans, turned God into, turned Yahweh into a God just like all of their other gods and really, uh, you know, brought him down and humanized him, you know, made him look like them, act like them, talk like them, made him in their image. Yep. And, and he said he has a wife. And then said, we worship him. We yeah. worship him like you do. And mm-hmm. the, the true people of God say, you do not worship Yahweh because Yahweh has clearly revealed himself in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And if you're worshiping anything other than who Yahweh is, according to the scriptures, you're not worshiping him. Right. Um, so anyways, just, just yeah. from a credo Christian perspective, and of course we, 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 we don't say this to be mean or rude. We say this just according to the truth of the Bible. Right. Uh, we would say that if you are worshiping the LDS gods, uh, you you are the one who is in opposition to the people of God. You are the one who actually is stopping the work of God or seeking to by continuing on in your pagan religion. And I know that that sounds yeah. harsh, but it's it's, it's from true. our perspective, it's true, right? right? It's the truth. Yeah. And, you know, there are sincere people who suffer for their faith in religions all over the world. That's right. So it's not a, it's not like a surefire way to find the truth. Yeah, you know we even do a lot of mission work in uh, Sri Lanka. Yeah, and there's been a 30 year war in Sri Lanka between uh, different religious groups. I believe it's Buddhists and, and uh, Hindus, and uh, I mean they have been slaying each other. Yeah. And you know it's it's just ironic because we go to the Hare Krishna temple here to do. Uh, different things, different evangelistic outreaches a, a lot of times, and you'll have a lot of people and will ask, why are you here? And they'll say, well, it's just such a peaceable religion. And like, no, it's not. <laughs> like this yeah. religion results in a lot of killing. And uh, that's not to get, you know, no, Christians off the hook no, 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 <laughs> in any yeah. way for things historically. But right, right. Anyway, just no, to say, you. yes, there is suffering in every religion. Exactly. There's sincerity in every religion. Yep. And for some reason, LDS, if you're going to say this is how you know it's true, you must think yourselves better than other people. Yep. But on the surface, this statement that is in the subtitle of the LDS curriculum, opposition cannot stop the work of God. <laughs> it, 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 I agree. It, it, true. I, I absolutely agree. And I would just only add to that, <laughs> I'm not sure they do. Yeah. Why can't they use their agency and oppose it? Mm. Yeah. I, right? I mean, why not? 
he can't, he, they don't have a God, let alone one who determines all things. Right. Yeah. So why not? Mm-hmm. And two, notice it's live true to their faith, showing the subjectivity. So you have, what do you have as many faiths as people? Yeah. It's not the faith for us. It's the faith. And you want to see a summary of that. Look at the Nicene Creed. Um, and then also just at this end, right? What other examples of facing opposition can help us see, for example, Joseph Smith's history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Cause you got to fit him somewhere in here on the, has there been anything about like, I don't know the cross and the wrath of God and the love, mm-hmm. love of God tr- biblically understood. Yeah. As you pointed, no. Yeah. But we got to fit Joseph Smith's, you know, fake history in here. Yeah. And then we've got in uh, on the last subsection, Luke 23, 34 to 43, the Savior offers us hope and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, again, what kind of hope is he offering you yeah. according to your religious system? What kind of forgiveness is he offering you well, according to your religious system? Mm-hmm. Is he offering the kind of forgiveness where he removes your sins from you as far as the east is from the west? Nope. Where your sins are finally, fully, and completely dealt with, past, present, and future, as nope. accords to your righteous standing before God on the last day? Mm-mm. No. No, They and they do give specific answers in the um, seminary manual, as we'll get to. Yeah. Uh, and then it says, even in his final moments, this is just talking about the particular example where uh, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing um, to, to those who are crucifying him. And it says, even in his final moments, the Savior continued to offer hope and forgiveness. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you want to make any comments on that little bit before we get into all the other stuff we have. Well, it, once again, it's it's not a finished work. That's what's funny. They named the entire lesson, it is finished. And like we said, even for for Jesus himself, it's not finished. He's He still has more to progress. Um, yeah. So, let alone for us, right? And... Um, it is. It's just kind of weird. The next sentence: Consider ways to inspire class members to follow his example of being on a cross, and how can we follow the Savior's example? Once again, just this example, 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 example. And um, they, they do include the Joseph Smith translation footnote, meaning the soldiers who crucified him. Which, you know, I, I remember uh, hearing a, a few people say that meant that it didn't include the Jews, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so just just a brief note on, and we'll get more into this in a little bit, but just a brief note on how we understand these chapters from a credo-Christian perspective. Everything in the Gospels is leading to this moment. That's why this is at the end. It's the climax. It's the pinnacle. It is the moment that we've been waiting for, the moment that Jesus goes and dies on the cross. And you see as the apostles begin to develop this theology and this apostolic witness and teaching, uh, especially in the, uh, the Apostle Paul, but definitely in all of the apostolic writings, you see this testimony to the significance of the cross, the crucifixion what this was all about. And this becomes the very heart and center of the Christian faith um, is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we have already talked about the atonement in a number of, of uh, in, well, in really almost, well, there was the Easter episode, and then last week we talked, or the, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it would have been last week for people listening, but we talked about the atonement because of the way that the LDS faith tends to ground the atonement in the activity that occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here you have Jesus on the cross itself, 
And uh, how how do they deal with this, Skyler, from an LDS perspective? How how do they handle the crucifixion of Jesus? So, um, in just looking for more detail, looking at the seminary manual, uh, let me just kind of lay out some of this. Um, it says, of course. As you study, seek to increase your desire to be more like Jesus Christ as you learn from his example when he was crucified. Yep. Um, not even here can they just leave themselves out of it. <laughs> just just let it be. Mm-hmm. Establish a sense of purpose. So they really want a sense of purpose on this lesson. Have a unified purpose that's clear to both teachers and students can increase faith and give direction and meaning to the classroom experience. Um, okay. As you study the Savior's example, seek the guidance of the Holy Ghost to help you desire to be more like him. And then they do this um, timeline, experiences prior to and during the crucifixion, in which they lay it out. And I want to bring up this ties with the last episode as well. They include in the timeline, he suffered for the sins of the world in Gethsemane. He suffered... For the sins of the world in Gethsemane. Then they have, of course, the betrayal, the trial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they say, he hung on the cross. That's it. He hung on the cross. Nothing about sins of the world on the cross. Yep. They want it both ways. They want to say the cross is an essential part of the atonement. Yeah. But once again, they, they focus when it comes to suffering for sins in Gethsemane and him dying, they... They will say, yeah, of course he died on the cross. Yeah. In um, in this particular literature. Right. Right. That right. that's what's so tricky it's about it. We were talking about how slippery mm-hmm. it is because yeah. I, I was listening to the interpreter on this and they used the sorts of evangelical phrases that we would use. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You know, like they right. they use these kind of things in in their lingo, but what yeah. are they going to put in print? Right. You know what I mean? And, and defend like, it. What's going to go down in the in the actual curriculum, right? And and um, show how that's consistent with their entire temple system, yeah, and 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 and, and consistent with their view of the thief on the cross, yep. as we're going to get to, yeah. Like it'll be like, yeah, he suffered for sin, but not even the sin of the you know the thief. He's got to become righteous. He couldn't you know just be forgiven. I don't know. It's yeah. Receive grace, yeah. Like 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 what Christians have always believed. So. Yeah, they they it's it's weird. They they talk through both sides of their mouth. Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand how anyone cannot see that that at least has absolutely happened. Yep. I mean, the cross was absolutely taboo when I was a kid, and now you talk to people they're like, no, that was never the case. No, yeah. no, it's always been fine. No, yep. it has not always been fine. Mm-hmm. Like that when I saw someone wearing a cross, I knew they weren't LDS. That's that's how it was, right? Yep. Yep. But they want to be like, oh no, revisionism, revisionism, revisionism. It doesn't fit what I want you to aesthetically. Th- feel right now yeah so they of course once again think about these events how you know how they affect how you feel toward the savior and what he endured for you and uh then they land on the thief on the cross i want to come back to that but here here's where more of where um you know the the why comes in right in what ways do you want to be like the savior and why okay here's the big takeaway for them for the week in what ways do you want to be like the Savior? Yep. Wait, so you determine, you determine how you want to be like him. Yep. It's not God determining how he wants you conform to him in his image. Yep. 
It's once again self-centered. They're in the God seat in this religion. Yep. And yep. and so it says, okay, seek the inspiration of the Holy Ghost for you to decide. Yeah. Um, of course, once again, equating emotions with the spirit. Um, they, you know, it's like they think they're very spiritual if they're emotional. It's yep. like, you know what? That's not the same. Yeah. Like there's, yeah, there's plenty of emotional people. It doesn't make them spiritual. Um, and that, me too. Seek the inspiration. And then it says, what you have felt today. That's that's what you want to f- emphasize. Here's um, Nelson, who uh, totally butchers this verse from Hebrews that talks about for joy, right? I mean, here's this right. a beautiful passage in Hebrews. Well, yep. Here's what Nelson does with it. As in all things, Christ is our ultimate example, exemplar, yeah. right? And why? Because on the cross, he focused on joy. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's what it's about. Yeah. The cross, it's a happy thing. You yeah. Know? So, and, but here's the, here's where it says the joy is making it possible for you and me to return home possible not actually mm. doing it yep not it's finished yep. no he makes it possible somehow for yeah. you and me to return home clean and worthy yeah clean and worthy and live with our heavenly parents and families so once again the polytheism comes in and the family idolatry comes in and that's what's finished apparently the f- what's what is actually finished in that yeah. entire sequence well yeah it's it's a conflating of terms right, right? we we want to say it is finished because Jesus says it is finished right and when we're talking about the cross in uh in in the uh interpreter podcast yeah. we want to talk about how Oh, I know when I mess up again and again, and I mess up, I I still can be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. You know, we we, we want to say these sorts of things, but then we hear directly from our you know president here. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> it only makes it possible. possible. The cross doesn't actually Do guarantee anything. that you're going to be forgiven on the last day. Right. It makes it possible for you to progress to the state of exaltation. Exactly. And who to progress? I mean, this this is what I would want to say. With all this example, example, example stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Impossible stuff. If you become clean and worthy yourself, you work hard enough and earn it and whatever. Yeah. Okay. What the minute before the crucifixion? Oh, okay. You want to include the garden? All right. The minute before the garden was less real than the minute after the crucifixion in the Mormon system. Yeah. We have answers to that, biblical ones. We've been waiting for the Messiah, right? The, the people of Israel, God's people, were waiting for this Messiah to come and bear the sins of the people, right? Yeah. And, and we look back on him having done that mm-hmm. so that he can forgive without violating his justice. We look at the cross, we see the justice of God, the wrath of God, the wrath we deserved, and then we see the salvation he alone can provide to those he chooses. What, what in this example system is any more real the minute before Gethsemane than yeah. the minute after the cross? Why do you need this story at all. And the only Mormon answer that's consistent with its overall theological scheme, if you put aside all the word games, is that it was necessary for Jesus' exaltation, and you can too. Mm-hmm. There's a, a theologian that we've mentioned a number of times, Jay Gresham Machen, and uh, he, he takes on theological liberalism more astutely than any other oh, writer great. that probably exists. Yeah. 
which by the way, there's a new podcast, Christianity and Liberalism, that's uh, leading up to the 100th anniversary edition of his book coming out. Really good podcast. You I, check it out. I thank you. For I think you'd me. like it. Yeah. I thank you for telling me. But uh, anyway. Um, Jay Gresham Machen in uh, a book that was published recently, Things Unseen. It's Machen did a lot of radio addresses, mm-hmm. and a lot of the books that we have of his are really well written radio addresses that he did. And so this is another one of those. But he was talking about the atonement, and I, I want to read this just to show that the elements that we see present within the LDS system are nothing new. And that's probably for a couple of reasons. It's probably because they were being influenced by theological liberalism and were borrowing from the arguments of theological liberals who were coming out of a more uh, progressive Christian sort of a background. But uh, also, I mean, you know, from a spiritual perspective, as we look at heresies throughout the history of the church, they're reoccurring. They pop up in different ways over and over again. And so listen to Machen comment. He's not commenting on Mormonism here. But he is very clearly articulating what we see being articulated in the LDS understanding of atonement. Machen says, of the, of the uh, prevailing, essentially wrong views of the atonement, the most common among them is the theory that Christ's death upon the cross had merely a moral effect upon man. <laughs> man is by nature a child of God. Okay? So every man is by nature a child of God, yep. right? Yep say the advocates of that view, but unfortunately, he is not making full use of his high privilege. So man is a child of God, but he's just not acting like the child that he should be acting like. He has fallen into terrible degradation, and having fallen into terrible degradation, he has become estranged from God. So it's about this relational estrangement. You are a child, but you've been relationally estranged. You need to be made at one. So that's why when you hear LDS people talk about the atonement, they tend to highlight this at-one-ment, this at-one-ment, this at-one-ment. Totally bogus, but yeah. We'll, we'll get to that someday. Yeah, he, which we would not negate that the atonement accomplishes reconciliation. Absolutely. But that's not, that's not well, I don't even want to say it's not fundamental, but it's not all that there right, is. Right, And uh, I, th- I think the better word, and Machen makes this, this point as well, is uh, maybe perhaps even other than atonement, we should use the word satisfaction. Sure. That Christ's work was, was a satisfaction. Right. of the requirements of the law right. because of the holiness of God. Right. And uh, I should say, when they do that, at one, it, it's more Richard Rohr than William Tyndale. That's why I made that snide comment, barely. They they literally are using Tyndale and claiming he was a support of their view, and it's it, it's yeah. ridiculous. But uh, Machen goes on to say, that's the great and central all-pervading vice of most modern books that deal with the cross. He's talking about progressive Christianity here. They make the cross of Christ merely an example yep. of a general principle of self-sacrifice. And if they talk still of salvation, they tell us that we are saved by walking in the way of the cross. It is thus, according to this view, not Christ's cross, but our cross that saves us. <laughs> the way of the cross leads us to God. Christ may have a great influence in leading us to walk in that way of the cross, that the way of that that way of self-sacrifice but it is our walking in it and not Christ walking in it which really saves us. Yep. Thus we are saved by our own efforts, not by Christ's blood after all. Machen has a way of just hitting the nail on absolutely. the head. Absolutely. And I, I can't find anything that makes me historically uh, aware of him knowing about Mormonism yeah. at all. Yep. But just the similarity, you know, Machen's Christianity and liberalism be basically the structure and 
this is an idea. Maybe someone should do this sometime. Uh, uh, for a book yeah. about Mormon, you know, Christianity dealing with Mormonism, because mm-hmm. every single one of the core liberal tenets he attacks as something completely different from Christianity. In fact, he, he even goes out of his way. He says, from my perspective, Rome is less than consistent Christianity. Mm-hmm. Liberalism isn't Christianity. Yep, it's a different religion. <laughs> it's a completely different religion. And every single one of these is taken for granted by believing LDS people, people that would be considered conservative LDS, have absolutely liberal theological assumptions. Yep. yep. It's just something that it's hard to see. Well, compare that with Paul, right? I preached on the book, Christ crucified. And right, I made Christ crucified visible before you, yep. right? Yep. And I'm gonna I'm gonna move us along because we're trying to keep the time uh right. in, in place here. But I know you have a lot of good stuff on how this all relates even into the uh, the symbol of the cross. And one of the LDS tenets, of course, is to not display crosses, at least up until recently. Of course, as we've mentioned, we've seen some BYU students walking around with crosses hanging yeah, down from yeah, their neck. That's, but that's a new so, thing. So, yeah, something's changing here. But the reason that they don't uh, display crosses is for the very reason of what we are talking about here, it gets into their understanding of what the cross is that Mm -hmm. they they often will say something along the lines of, we don't display crosses on our, uh, on our necklaces or whatever else, because we display the cross in our internal lives and the way that we live, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's this example following, we display the cross by our sacrifice, our self-sacrifice and the things that we do. And uh, of course that ties into their understanding of the cross being the, the example by which they live their lives and yep. thus, you know, seek to show that example to others. But you've got some good stuff that yeah. I, I want you to get to on kind of wh- why, why, you know, and where did this history of, of not displaying crosses within LDSism come from? Uh, what, why, why have they kind of, in their history, not really had a lot of the cross? Right, and I guess part of part of what's interesting about that story is that that wasn't always the case. Yep. So um, once again, it depends on which angle uh, someone is trying to defend the position or be say, "Oh no, that's not really true." Um, so I, f- I figured I better just read. I don't know, and true to the faith, like the standard. LDS reference. It even has a message from the first presidency on the front page from 2004. Yep. Let me just read their section on the cross. So, you know, if somebody's like, that's not what we believe. I'm reading literally your manual with the first presidency letter within the last 20, 25 years. Okay. The cross is used in many Christian churches as a symbol of the Savior's death and resurrection and as a sincere expression of faith. Of course, that's way nicer than the quotes that uh, I won't have time for most of them, but you know, that's not how they used to talk about it. Let's say that. Mm. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we also remember with reverence the suffering of the Savior. Once again, look at the word. Where do they think the suffering happened, though? Uh, not that it, they don't say it didn't, you know, it, it didn't hurt on the cross. It's just, anyway. But because the Savior lives, we do not use the symbol of his death as the symbol of our faith. Right there. We do not use the symbol of his death as the symbol of our faith. That is the official position. Yep. Your life must be the expression of your faith. So what is the expression of their faith? What, how you live. Yeah, Machin right. alert. Machin alert, right? Yep. How you live is the expression of your faith. And I, I, I would just say, I said this last time in the Gethsemane episode, if that's true, why do you do the sacrament? Yep, that's right. Why do you remember the body and liquid of Jesus? Yeah. 
it really is fascinating to think about. Yeah, just just to make that imagery clear, when we're talking about the display of the cross, that is something that is external to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the display of the cross, you know, rightly understood from a Christian perspective, is an understanding that our salvation occurred outside of us. Uh, we have our faith in Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Mm-hmm. We trust him for all, he's our all-sufficient merit. There's a beautiful new song by Shane and Shane. Have you heard that song yet? I, I oh haven't. my goodness, it's so good. I don't it's even know really who he good. is. Uh, they, yeah. They. You definitely don't know who he is because he is a they, but not a Got they it. in the modern <laughs> sense. <laughs> he's a they. It's two guys and both, oh. it's named Shane. They're bo- both named Shane. So Shane okay. and Shane. <laughs> like, who are you listening? <laughs> he's a they. <laughs> All right, man. Wow. Okay. <laughs> this is uh mercy. 2023. All right. So uh yeah. Um no, sorry, like they I haven't heard them. They. Yeah, it's gotcha. a they. Yeah, two he's plural. There's two of them. So <laughs> um uh, we we're not giving up our language yet. No. So uh anyway, but uh yeah, so so just the cross being something that's external to you that uh that may serve as a symbol that you would you would look at and you would remember Christ died for my sins on the cross uh, versus this LDS understanding that, no, we don't do that because you shouldn't be looking outside of you Mm -hmm. um, for, for the object of your faith. You should be displaying it within you. Right. Right. So it's this internal, my faith is really whatever is occurring within me and my own obedience and my own service and my own sacrifice um, that's ultimately the object of your faith within a LDS system is internal. Yep. And so you just see it even in that little statement, right? Um, yep. And why they don't display crosses. Absolutely. And man, there's a lot there. <laughs> a lot. Oh, oh man, so much I want to respond to that. But yes, yep. Remember that when you were baptized and confirmed, you covenanted to take upon yourself the name of Jesus. Uh, all right, I can't resist. Just one thing. You think your life is the expression of the faith. Okay, how about Jesus saying the most important commandment is the Shema, that there's only one God? Mm-hmm. How about that? Do you guys live that? Yeah. You have, you know, how many, if they're all married, were they polygamist? Bruce Harper Conkey says polygamy is going to be restored in the millennium. Like, the fact that the, it, monotheism has never really been there. I mean, that people say maybe the Book of Mormon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you guys do not live what Jesus taught. Yeah. So stop it. You know yeah. what they mean is nice white Jesus. That's what they mean. They yeah. mean nice guy. Like you just be nice. Yeah. It's like okay, there's a plenty of people in history that told people to be nice. Mm-hmm. Why do you focus on this one? Right. I mean, just being nice is okay, fine. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. And I don't think Jesus even was always nice. But anyways, as you as your associates observe you, they should be able to sense your love for the Savior and his work. Okay, The only members of the church who wear the symbol of the cross are Latter-day Saint chaplains. Why I'm including that is, think about it, the only members of the church who wear the symbol of the cross are LDS chaplains who wear it on their military uniforms to show that they are Christian chaplains. And uh, Michael Reed actually shows that's, it's because of the limitation legally. Uh, they don't fit. That's the closest thing to it, and they don't. They can't do the Angel Moroni yet. Although the Veterans um, Administration does allow them for uh, tombstone, like if you say, uh, you know, uh, LDS served in Iraq and died, they can get an Angel Moroni on their hmm. gravestone. So um, if that were to happen, that's what they would wear. But it's just anyway. 
So I, I just wanted to show that, but that has not always been the case. So let me try to make this really quick because I, I do want to end on the thief and the cross because that's that's where it matters most. That's where you see that it's not finished for them. Um, and Christ did not accomplish anything, period. Yeah. Right. He He's an example of a continuing process of progression. Um, okay. So there's two stories here, and they do interweave. And so how do I get this simply? You do have the cross displayed all the time in early Mormonism. Most interestingly, with magical stuff. Yeah. So the Smiths were, of course, into the occult, into magic, and they had magical parchments. There are crosses on them. Mm -hmm. So the cross was Brigham Young's daughters, John Taylor's funeral. Um, even a couple of the temples are in cruciform shape. And um, I believe even the original logo may have had one. So... It's interesting because like a Bushman will say, well, there was a lot of anti-cross Protestantism in America at the time as well. So we're just like them. But it's like, but you weren't like them. Yeah. You did. You actually early on did. And, you know, so um, where did the taboo come from? Uh, we don't have time to go into maybe a bonus episode sometime. But in 1915, there was a proposal for the Ensign, at Ensign Peak, which is, um, it's a very sacred site for LDS here in Utah. In fact, it was a natural temple. They would do endowments there before they had a functioning temple building. And um, the LDS church actually proposed a, a cross monument there. Mm. Um, and that brought out quite a bit of pushback, um, though there was some from the top, um, mostly from the bottom, mm. from the members. Um, so, like, for example... Um, there was a, a, a member of the LDS High Council of the Taylor Stake in Alberta, Canada, who um, wrote to, in fact, a, a Nibley, uh, who was a general authority at the time, who presented the first presidency letter to the Salt Lake City Council for this monument. And just as an example, he, he said that he was super um, uh, bugged by the proposal from the church. And... Um, <laughs> he he says the original cross is the Egyptian Ankh, right? And that um, he had personal revelation that the cross is Lucifer's symbol. It means there's no preexistence of the spirit. So that's what supposedly God told him. So there was all sorts of pushback. It eventually failed um, where maybe because of the division on it, they just let it fail. There was also a lawsuit from some rabbis in Salt Lake City about you know, separation of church and state or whatever. Yeah. So it never, it didn't end up happening. But what is interesting is that uh, when there was a, uh, a dedication of the um, park there, um, Gordon B. Hinckley actually uh, mentioned this incident and was happy it didn't happen. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for those who want to double check this. And they actually ended up putting, um, an obelisk there. So, okay, that's that's fine, but not a cross. So <clears throat> that's what's interesting. So when did the taboo become formalized? And it was in the presidency of David O. McKay. Um, and um, we have people writing him letters about, oh, you know, girls are buying these crosses downtown Salt Lake from yeah. a company. And Is that okay? Remind like what years roughly he was, it was the forties, right? Right, right. That's when, when we start seeing, yeah, that's, that's when we start seeing, it become top down 
right? Not just bottom up or mixed at the top and, and mixed at the bottom. Yeah, like I might no more crosses. Right, right. Coming from the president of the church. Exactly. And it, 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 where opposition to the cross became institutionalized, which is, like I said, way later than you'd think, <laughs> um, uh, where, um, you know, David McKay would say, Latter-day Saint girls should not purchase and wear crosses. Crosses are purely Catholic. And, of course, um, they are drawing on anti-Roman Catholic rhetoric of earlier general authorities. But what's so interesting, though, to complicate it, is that um, with a couple exceptions, Moses Thatcher and, and another, um, that— Rhetoric was not often aimed at the symbol um, of the cross because, once again, they're like Brigham Young's daughters are wearing them, like they're at funerals and stuff. So, it yeah, it's a little bit of a complicated story, but yeah. um, they'll draw on that anti-Roman cat. You know, it's the Great Bible Church. It's the you know, so it's the sign of you know the um, what is it uh, sign of the beast or whatever. And um, so it, it it's at that point that. Um, the formal church policy banning the use of the cross became official. And um, it, it, I mean, even around that same time, there was David O. McKay uh, didn't even want Ezra Taft Benson, who was a government official, right, to, to meet with the Pope. Um, so, like, there was, that was pretty clear, yeah. right? Yeah. Instead of seeing it as some opportunity to say, hey, we all agree or whatever. Mm. They were pretty clear then. And then at that point, that you start seeing kind of the rationalization. Remember, this is overlapping what we covered last time with the emphasis on the garden, but it doesn't match up cleanly. So it's a very messy story. Yeah. But just as some as an example, just so especially the Christians listening can hear, this is what LDS general authorities were saying, and the interpreter may not want to emphasize that now, but... It, it, what are they going to do with this, right? Where Joseph Fielding Smith said, to bow down before a cross, look upon it as an emblem to be revered because of the fact that the Savior died upon a cross is repugnant and contrary to the true worship of our Redeemer. Now, we're not, it's, of course, a straw man of what we're doing. Um, and he went on to say, we may definitely be sure that if our Lord had been killed with a dagger or with a sword, it would have been very strange if religious people this day would have graced such a weapon by wearing and adoring it because it was... Such a, by such a means that our Lord was put to death. So, <laughs> once again, you know, it's this isn't um, close. And, and of course, there's even examples that uh, Michael Reed includes where you have, in art, you had a painting that included crosses in the, in the distance in the painting. Mm-hmm. And when they, they had this painting done for the Joe Smith building, they... That's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, Somehow the cross has disappeared. Right. And then two examples in manuals where there's quotes that included, you know, a phrase about the cross that they edit out in manuals, official manuals. So this, you know, they can claim now that, no, it never, whatever. No, it was. And and then they can say, on the other hand, they want to say, well, it came out of anti-cross polemics among Protestants, which unfortunately there is some truth to, right? There uh, two examples I'll put in the show notes where um, Protestant churches put crosses up and mobs came and burned them. Yep. Burning crosses. That that has a great history in the United States. Yep. Yep. Um, so that that is unfortunately true. But it, at the same time, that actually isn't true as an explanation of the Mormon taboo. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I... Uh, it's it's funny. One little thing, then I'll move on to the second story and make it faster. Um, the I was talking, I got to see my stepmom recently, shout out to her. And um, 
she told me, you know, growing up here during the Benson years and all that, right? Like I, I said, did you ever, I, I just said, you grew up here and your, your father was a priest, you know? <laughs> so, so did you ever, I'm just like, am I crazy? Did you ever see an LDS wear or display a cross in your entire life? You went to school here, you grew up, you went to high school, you've lived here your whole life basically. And she said, absolutely not. No way. It's like across, it's like when I wanted to be a rebellious teenager with my neighbors when they started, you know, that's what I would wear. You yeah. know, like it was, it was a way to signal you weren't LDS. Yep. And that didn't come out of nowhere. That's not made up history. So yeah, I know they want to minimize it now, but we're yeah. not going to let them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even just case in point, when you listen to the interpreter podcast and the text that's being covered is very clearly the passages that are explicitly talking about the crucifixion. Somehow the first 15 to 20 minutes is all on what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane again. <laughs> right, right. You know, and and uh, and so, yeah, this isn't just uh, theoretical. It's not like we're just making this stuff up. It really, it's coming from somewhere. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and, and one of the things we we're talking about is, like, what is the why? Like, really, what is the why? Um, you know, mm -hmm. I know they're, of course, they're going to give the answer well because the cross is displayed in our lives and things like that. But, but, you know, I just wonder what more is there that they want to not only not display crosses, but center the atonement in the garden of Gethsemane versus what occurred on the cross. You know, like why does that need to be a particular distinction? Um, and I, you know, I still don't quite grasp what the reasoning is behind why they want to make a, such a big deal out of that. It, right. And, and I think there are definitely social issues. It might be, uh, it, it, and I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. It might be one of these ironies where they are being consistent mm -hmm. theologically. Yeah. Because they really don't have a use for it. I mean, yeah. I think if they could just write Jesus's story, it would end in victory in the sense of no shame, no, you know, you know what I'm talking about just, just the straight trajectory, like what was expected by some. Yeah. And there wouldn't be shame there wouldn't mm. be, you know, hell, yeah. you know, I, I just think, I mean, is it because the cross creates such a problem for them? Is, I, it, is that, yeah. is that the, the reason for the, the general neglect of it? You I know? think for some, yeah. you know, I honestly, I don't get the impression that most LDS think through it. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. I think most of the, that's why I lean into the social explanation a little more here. Yep. Um, but that being said, people who do, yeah. Um, like the general authorities, I think they have theological reasons for it. Yep. I don't think it's just an aesthetic reason. I don't think it's just a social distinctive. Um, I think you do have people who have theological reasons, and then within that range, you have this push either to distinguish LDS from everybody else by emphasizing the garden and diminishing the cross. And for those who want quotes, we, we read them last time, where they will even say, people who think he suffered for sins on the cross... That's not true. You know, that's what they would say before. Um, and then when they want to to minimize the difference and be like, oh, we're just like you. We're just, a, you know, another, I guess, Protestant church. Um, then you minimize the, that and be like, no, it's been there the whole time. You know, I, yeah. so I, I don't know. I, to me, it's kind of like uh, when they use the excuse of the Lord's Prayer. And it's like, I'm, a, I'm glad you guys don't say it. Yeah. Because it's not true of you. Yeah, and it, and I'm glad you don't don't emphasize the cross, 
because it doesn't really apply to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like if you, if you literally have that view of God and of man and of the Bible, all that, all the, the things that we've been emphasizing throughout the year, you probably shouldn't emphasize the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really have a context in which it has meaning. Yeah. And, and even in this very lesson, we see that he's, he's an example of salvation. He's not really a savior yeah. and it's not really finished. He's an example of one who's still progressing. Yeah. And of course, from a credo Christian perspective, the cross is significant yep. because the death is mm-hmm. significant. Yep. The, the bleeding out, the, the, the giving up of life, the punishment, the wages of sin yeah. being death. Um, that's why the cross is significant. That's why we're, we're not saying the atonement is occurring in the Garden of Gethsemane because he didn't die in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that's not to say that we wouldn't say that elements of that are essential to the atonement weren't being uh, worked out in the Garden of Gethsemane, his active obedience, his yep. passive obedience, even in his suffering that he was, he was uh, experiencing there. But... The atonement where he accomplished our salvation occurred when he took the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God, took the punishment for sin, and died. Yep. Um, That's the cup he's referring to. That's right. It's not in the garden. He's talking about the cup he's experiencing then. He's looking forward to the cup he will bear. Yep, yep. And that's... And and in order to understand all of this... Um, you know, in order to really understand why every single gospel is leading up to this moment where Jesus is crucified, you have to know your Old Testament. Yep. You have to understand the sacrificial system. You have to understand that God had established this system in which human sin could be dealt with by that sin being symbolically transferred to a bull or goat or lamb or, or whatever else. And, and, and there we even was the exercise of the sinner coming to the the temple, laying his hands on the bull and, and his sins in a symbolic way being removed from him onto the bull, and the bull died. The bull wasn't in a garden bleeding out somewhere because he was stressed about what was happening. That 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 wasn't atonement. Atonement was when the punishment was was uh, administered to the sacrificial object if you will, um, which under the Old Testament system, of course, bulls and goats were never ultimately sufficient. Those are all pictures of what is coming, uh, which is Jesus. He's the pinnacle of it all. So all of the Old Testament is leading up to this moment where Jesus comes into the world, and that's why every single gospel is like just just anticipating and leading up to the death of Christ because it's in the death of Christ that the, that the death blow to sin is administered in the lives of those who trust in him. That's where he deals with the sins of his people is on the cross when, uh, when he dies. And so um, you've got to have that sort of understanding to really fully, I think, grasp what's happening in the atonement. And of course, that's what you see occurring in the epistles is the apostles are working out this theology and are teaching the church. Here's how all this fits together. Here's what Jesus accomplished on the cross um, he accomplished our salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, you know, he he's the one who accomplishes our salvation, and our only hope is in him. Yes, absolutely. You know, Colossians. This this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All right. of our sins, all of our iniquities, dealt with. 
you know, and, and, uh, and so in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we as his people by trust in him can, can know forgiveness of our sins and the righteous credit, uh, that he earned in his life, uh, as if it were our own. And, uh, that's our only hope, right? So that's why we love the cross. Yes. And we see that, um, so clearly in the, the forgiveness, the atonement received as a gift by the thief. That's right. So here's, here's, um, I, 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 this, we cannot finish without this. Which but, is not mentioned in the Sunday school manual. Okay. But, but it in the was sem- discussed in the seminary. In manual, seminary. So. And I want to read David Ridge's comment on that yep. as well. His commentary that we've talked about quite a bit throughout the year. Um, so, um, they have a note saying that Prophet Joseph Smith, and I just want to read just the citation first. So notice when we cite something, you know, that, you know, is in some journal somewhere or some very technical source of a, of a journal or a sermon or notice they say, oh, come on, you have to cite the mainstream five sources or whatever, right? Well, in the manual, they cite a discourse 11th, June, 1843A is reported by Wilfred Woodruff. That sounds pretty technical to me. Mm-hmm. So when I do that about Joseph Smith saying Jesus is a white man, they say, that's not doctrine. But when they do it, I guess it is. I don't yeah. know. So note that Prophet Joseph Smith taught that when the Savior referred to this thief being with him in paradise, he was teaching him that, quote, I will be with thee in the world of spirits and will teach thee and answer thy inquiries. Mm-hmm. The last thing Joseph Smith wants is actual salvation given. And keep in mind, to heighten the point, the scripture includes where he says, right, we deserve what we're getting. Yeah, This is someone who's deserving of the punishment of crucifixion in the legal system of that time. Yep. And Jesus says, no, no, today, not, not waiting forever, today you will be with me. Not, not, I will give you an opportunity, I'll teach you, and then if you apply it well enough, if you're worthy and clean enough, I'll give you the chance. Oh, there's no mention of heavenly parents and yep. families forever. That's right. That's right. No, he says, today you'll be with me and that's in paradise. critical, the words with me. With me. Me in an and, LDS system yeah. because Jesus is going into exaltation. Exactly in what? an LDS way of thinking. This Dude, this mm-hmm. thief has not progressed exactly. at all. That's exactly it. Is Jesus in the spirit paradise of the LDS system? Yeah. No, he's in the celestial kingdom. Yep. He said, "Today you're going to be with me where I'm going." Yep. And and here's here's this. And I know there's we could go off on paradise maybe some other time, but it's the point. It's <laughs> he's going to be with Christ. So. Here he says, um, David Ridges, it is a common belief that the thief on the cross went to paradise. This is not the case. So Jesus said he will, David Ridges. Remember, this is the supposedly the one true church of Jesus. And yet notice, throughout this year, whenever Jesus says something, they often don't care. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Shema, he says there's no marriage in heaven. I mean, we've, what, a dozen, two dozen examples of Jesus clearly teaching something. Yep. Right? If you if you don't forsake your family and come to me, right, you're not worthy of me. Yep. No, he goes on. Our Bible dictionary, so now David Rich has decided the LDS Bible dictionary explains this. It says, the Bible rendering is incorrect, period. Yep. That's all you get? 
The statement would more accurately read, oh, okay, so their Bible dictionary doesn't help elucidate the context so we can understand the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Their Bible dictionary is there to say, no, Jesus was wrong, apparently. Today shalt thou be with me in the world of spirits, since the thief was not ready for paradise. Mm. So what was finished? Yeah. What but, was finished? Yeah, but that, that still doesn't work in an LDS system because Jesus can't visit the people who are in the lower levels, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's what I've been told yeah. anyways. So. Maybe so. So yeah. my understanding is that people in higher levels can visit the lower yeah, but, people but only lower, down to the second is what I've heard. Maybe that Jesus can only go down to second tier. Oh yeah, but they, not they will first. say that about the telestial. Yeah. Huh? that they won't see Jesus ever. Yep, you're right. Yeah, well, anyways, yeah, and but the point is, he said today you're going to be with me, <laughs> but he's not ready, according to David Ridges and the LDS Bible Dictionary. No doubt, with his humble attitude, this thief accepted the gospel, which would soon be taught by missionaries. In spirit prison. Yep. Yeah. So once again, it, I mean, this is <laughs> on on it is finished. This is what the seminary menu. Like the Savior, we can complete what the Father wants us to do in our lives. Hmm. And and here's another thing too. Talk about honor, shame, all that. That. The, 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 literally the title, the, the, Jesus' disciples honor him. It's talking about his death. Honoring those who have passed away is the title of the day. So it's about honoring the dead. You know, that is literally the opposite. Where, where are the disciples? Right. In, in Mark 6, we see John the Baptist's disciples come and take care of the body, right? Where are the apostles when it comes to Jesus' body? It's not there. It's Actually, the point is he was completely for, forsaken. Yeah. Um, and once again, the tearing of the veil, right? Here's another one where it's like the veil has been torn. Yep. Bruce R. McConkie explanation, they include the seminary manual. He, all people become eligible to pass through the veil into the presence of the Lord to inherit full exaltation. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us all to return to Heavenly Father's presence and become like him. Dallin Oak says, Jesus' atoning sacrifice gives each of us the opportunity to repent of our sins and return to our heavenly home. His commandments and covenants show us the way. Yeah. Once again, Jesus is not the way. His covenant shows us the way we have to follow yeah. ourselves. And his priesthood gives authority to perform the ordinances that are essential to reach that destiny. And our Savior willingly experienced all mortal pains and infirmities so that he would know how to strengthen us yeah. in our afflictions. Yeah. There's nothing I, Just, yeah, go go read John 14 again, right? right? I mean, Jesus is talking to his disciples saying, I'm about to go away. And and Thomas especially, is, where are you going, Lord? How, how are we going to know where you're going? And uh, And Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm I'm leading you there. Just follow me where I go. You know, I'm going to give you the opportunity to get there. No, no. Jesus says, "I am the way. I am the way. The way is made in me. I am the way. If you're in me yeah. by faith, you you go. You're there, right? Right. right. Anyway, so yeah. Last last words there, Skyler. Yes. Yeah. I will put in the show notes a source on the cross was a symbol for Christians in early Christianity. It was not some Constantine conspiracy or whatever. Um, just I will that, for those who are interested in that it'll be there. And why has it always been our symbol? It's in the texts for one and B because this symbol of shame mm-hmm. is the symbol of victory. 
It's the symbol of the justice of God and salvation as a gift to the people of God. The justice and love of God. Yes. Meet at the cross. Yeah. Right. The same moment. Just, That's just, right. yeah. I, I thought Romans 3, 21 through 26 would be a way to end yep. here. The center of the whole Bible. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Next week, Matthew 28, Resurrection. See you there.